0: Turn with me, if you will, to Zephaniah chapter 3. I want to begin our reading in verse 14. I'm just gonna read verses 14 through 17 and look at this text together. You might find it an unusual sort of advent or Christmas text, but that's partially why I'm anxious to look at it with you because I think it's incredibly appropriate. Not that I think that any part of the Bible is inappropriate for Christmas, it all is. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word, your spirit might illumine our minds. He would give us ears to hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. Not only what Zephaniah the prophet was saying to Israel about her exile and restoration, but what he was saying to your people in every age about the coming Messiah and the great day of the Lord. We pray that we would hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, that we would believe, and that we would obey this command to sing with great joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We can't speak about Christmas apart from considering Christmas music, can we? I mean whenever you think about Christmas beginning and it begins earlier and earlier in our culture, suddenly the Christmas music starts coming on the radio. It's just part and parcel to our understanding of the Christmas season. And that's because there's something about our humanity that gives rise to literature and art and poetry and song. Whether it's a wedding or a funeral, a graduation or a big game, we're a people who sing. There's music that attends all of those circumstances. So the question is, what is it about our humanity that needs to express itself in art and in poetry and music? Why are we an artistic, literary, poetic, singing creature? Do You ever stop and think about that? I mean, your dog is not an artistic, literary, musical creature. Why are we? I think the simple answer to that question is found in one word beauty. Herman Bavink, the Dutch theologian, says this, art in all its works and ways conjures up an ideal world before us in which the discords of our existence on earth are purged in a gratifying harmony. Thus a beauty is disclosed in which this fallen world had been obscured by the wise, but is discovered to the simple eye of the artist's. And because art thus paints for us a picture of an other and higher reality, it is a comfort in our life. It lifts the soul up out of consternation and fills our hearts with hope and joy. So what is it about humans that we find it so necessary to express, to admire, to revel in beauty? The answer is it's because we're made in the image of God. God is true. Thus we seek after and love the truth. God is the truth, thus as is image bearers, we pursue the truth. That's why the relativizing of the truth in education and culture is so deeply dehumanizing, isn't it? God is holy, thus we seek after and love the good. Because God is good, his image bearers pursue the same. You know, we educate because we want our children to be lovers of the truth. Lovers of the good. In other words, we want them to be men. And I mean men in the gender-neutral sense. We want them to be virtuous, truth-loving men. If education is about helping humans become more human, which it is, if education is about, in other words, recovering more of the image of God that was corrupted and lost in the fall, which it is, then seeking the truth and pursuing virtue is deeply embedded in the goal of education. Or discipleship is another word for that. That is why we know something's missing in an educational system or in discipleship that seems to exist to make people merely productive employees and law-abiding citizens of the state, but has no regard for them being virtuous men. But I want to take it a step farther. God is not just true and good or holy. God is also glorious. He is magnificent in beauty. He spreads his beauty across the earth in all his works and ways. Thus we seek after and love that which is beautiful. God is beauty, thus as his image bears, we pursue what is beautiful. I think that's why God gave us the gifts of artists and poets and musicians. The reason we have historically encouraged music and art in education is because it makes us more human. Why? Because God is gloriously beautiful in all his works and ways. And music and art are capable of capturing that beauty and lifting our souls in a manner that makes us more truly human, that makes us more true image bearers. Thus, when we question how an art class or a poetry assignment or a music class helps prepare someone for employment, we betray our own misunderstanding of our humanity, don't we? I say all this to drive after the question, why are we creatures who sing? I don't think we stop and think about that enough. It's kind of an odd activity if you think about it to just start singing. Why? We are creatures who sing precisely because it is here in song that we are in some way able to capture beauty in a manner that we cannot in science or philosophy. See, we can capture what's true and good in those disciplines. But we really can't capture beauty in the same way, can we? When I walk into a hospital room of a family who just lost their loved one, people aren't asking for a science lesson. They're not asking for me to give them some philosophical accounting of what's happened. They want to hear a psalm read. A psalm is just a song. Why? Why is it then that they want a psalm, a song? It is because in the ugliness of sin and death, the beauty of song, particularly song that gives voice to the precious truths of the gospel, has a way of lifting our souls and filling our hearts. That's why Christians sing whenever we gather. That's why we have a book of Psalms. The Lord, in his sovereignty, superintended the writing of 150 songs. He didn't just give us epistles that are didactic, in other words, that teach us lessons sequentially or logically. He didn't just give us narratives that tell us the history of something. He gave us poetry. He gave us songs. Yes, we're commanded to sing. No, it's not an option not to sing. It's actually disobedience to God to stand there in corporate worship and not sing with God's people because you're commanded to sing. But God's commands are given so that we live in conformity with who he is and who he has designed us to be. Thus we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. And what's the content of those songs? What is it that we're singing about as Christians? What is moving us to song? The glorious beauty of the Lord in all his works and words, most especially or particularly in the gospel. That's why we sing at Christmas, isn't it? We sing because of the good news. What do the angels do at the birth of Christ? Have you ever considered that? They see that God now dwells with man in Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is Jesus, Yahweh saves, God's salvation to us. And they see him and they break out into song. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. That's what Christmas ought to lead us to do. Christmas ought to cause us to sing because there's a beauty in the gospel that we can capture no other way than by singing. And the prophet Zephaniah knew this. I'm telling you, the prophet Zephaniah knew that Christmas ought to cause you to sing. Why does he command them to sing with joy? Look at Zephaniah 3.14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why does he command them to sing with joy? This is my contention. He knew the Christ was coming and that he would be God with us, and he commanded us to sing. There's a central repeated theme here in this passage. Look at Zephaniah 3.15. Why are we singing aloud? Verse 15. The Lord, Yahweh, all caps, has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. In whom does he do that? But the Christ, the king of Israel, catch this, the Davidic king who would sit on the throne forever, the Lord, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. See that? The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Now look down at verse 17. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. He is God with you, a mighty one who will save. He is Yeshua, God the Savior, Jesus. Zephaniah knows the Messiah is coming and that he will be Emmanuel. God with us. He knows that from Isaiah. He knows that from direct superintendence of the Holy Spirit, God giving him a word from the Lord. Jesus is coming. That's what Zephaniah is saying. And Jesus is the sum and substance of the whole Old Testament. Now, this morning, I want to discuss two truths in Zephaniah with regard to Jesus being Emmanuel or God with us. Two truths which really cause us to sing. First, I want to look at Zephaniah and see what are the glorious benefits of Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us. Those glorious benefits cause us to sing. Second, I want to look at the gracious purpose of Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us. Because that gracious purpose causes us to sing. So let's look first at the glorious benefits of Jesus being Emmanuel. We sing with joy, really is what I'm arguing, because of the glorious benefits of Jesus being God with us. Twice Zephaniah emphasizes that he is God in our midst. What's the importance of that? Why stress twice that he is God in our midst? And what's the relationship between God being with us and the rest of the good news that Zephaniah is laying out here? In other words, why the repeat of the Lord is dwelling in our midst. Here's the short answer as to how that theme is tied with all these other benefits. Dwelling with God is life. Dwelling with God is life. He is in himself life. And to know him is life. That's why Jesus will say, this is eternal life, John 17, 3. To know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent, that doesn't just mean to intellectually know about him, that means to know him relationally through faith. That is why death is spoken of as separation from God. As those fallen in Adam, we are rebels against his holy law. As such, we are no longer a people who dwell with God. As Adam's offspring, God is not our God, and we are not his people. We are separated from him and condemned to death and hell. That's what Adam has brought us. In Adam's fall, Sin we all. Death is separation from God. Death belongs to his enemies, and we're his enemies, Due to sin and rebellion. So that sin is our slave master, Romans chapter 6. Satan is our father, John chapter 8 and Ephesians chapter 2. Death, both physical death and eternal spiritual death, what Revelation calls the second death, is our judgment. Thus, because of our sin and rebellion, the day of the Lord's judgment is coming. Final judgment is coming for our sin. Zephaniah tells us that first. Look with me at Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah is writing in the days of King Josiah. If you remember King Josiah, this is in the early decades of 7th century B.C. or 600s B.C. Josiah is king. He restores the law to Israel, if you guys remember that. But it's too little too late. They are headed for exile. And Zephaniah, in light of that, during that reign, we learn that he's in that reign from verse 1, says this in verse 2. Notice this. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. That language reminds you of the sweeping away of everything in the great flood. It's intentionally echoing that. I will sweep away, now notice the reverse order of Genesis 1 here. I will sweep away man and beast, day 6. I will sweep away the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, day 5. And the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the of the earth declares the Lord. In other words, there is this judgment coming, which is spoken of like the great flood, which is spoken of as a decreation. I created, and now I'm, if you will, decreating. I will stretch out my hand against Judah. Judah is the people of God. The last time you hear the language of God stretching out his hand is when God stretches out his hand against Egypt, his enemy. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Look down at verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. This is picking up language from Genesis 15 and we'll run all the way into Revelation 19. The sacrifice are the unbelievers whom the Lord will cut down, and his guests are the vultures whom he will call in to feast on their flesh. This is brutal language. Look down at verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, and against the lofty battlements. Now look down at verse 18. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. See, this great day of the Lord is coming in which he will judge all the earth for sin and unrighteousness and condemn them to eternal hell. Now you might say, he says all the inhabitants of the earth. This is prophetic idiom. It's a way of speaking hyperbolically because he will go on in Zephaniah 3.9 to say, I will save some. He will talk in Zephaniah 2 about a remnant of people he will save. So it's not that he's not going to save anyone from this judgment, but it's just that the prophet wants you to understand this judgment is totalizing. It's global. It's final. It's full. The only hope for us is that our sin would be forgiven, that Satan would be crushed, that death would be conquered, but we can't do any of that. Thus, we don't sing for joy in this state. We only lament. We sing, but it's a lamentation. We do not approach the Lord in confidence. We hide in guilt and fear and shame, and all of this is because of our sin. Adam and Eve dwelled with God in perfect righteousness and life and joy, didn't they? And when Satan tempted them to sin, and when they gave into that temptation, all was lost. We see this when Adam and Eve first sin in Genesis 3, and they try to cover their guilt and shame, and they go into hiding for fear of God. Yet what was God's first word in their face of rebellion? You ever stop to consider that? They rebel, God speaks to them about the rebellion like a parent speaking to a child. He's already known what they've done. Did you do what I told you not to? When you ask your kids, you know exactly. They know that you know. That's what the Lord is doing with Adam and Eve. It's not like he's learning something new. I'm not sure what they did. He's asking them just like you do your children. You want them to confess. Own up. They blame shift. Adam, that woman you gave me did it. Eve, Satan made me do it. And off we go. What's God's first word in response to all of that? He cursed the serpent. He cursed Satan. That's incredibly important for you to understand. Look at Genesis chapter three. Keep your hand in Zephaniah and look at Genesis chapter three. And turn there for sure because we're gonna look at a few passages in Genesis and then we're gonna move to Exodus and Leviticus and Jeremiah, just as a heads up. Look at Genesis chapter three, verse 14. The Lord, if you notice the sort of chiastic structure that exists here, what I mean by that is he starts off by addressing man, what have you done? And then he ends by cursing man And then he addresses, woman, what have you done? Then he goes to cursing woman second to last. Then he goes to Satan, what have you done? And then he curses Satan first. So the action of Satan and the curse upon Satan are at the center of that structure intentionally. So look what happens here. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This is not when serpents lost their legs. Let's be clear, serpents never had legs. That isn't the point. When he sang to Satan, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat, he's talking about the position that a conquered foe takes before his king. You'll see that in the prophets as they address when one king conquers another king and he puts that king, the conquered king, under his foot and that king eats the dust. He's going to be a conquered foe. Now look what it says in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Why is the head going to be bruised of the serpent and the heel going to be bruised of the son of man, the seed of the woman? Because he is going to smash the serpent's head with his heel. Friends, this curse was a gloriously gracious promise to Adam and Eve. This is the mother promise. In other words, it's the promise that gives birth to all other biblical promises. Through the woman, the Lord would send a man who would conquer Satan's sin and death. Thus, think of this, God's first word in the face of man's rebellion is grace. Salvation through judgment, which meets its culmination in the cross. We see this narrowed in the promise to Abraham, Look at Genesis chapter 12. As God calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, he makes this promise to him. Notice this language of blessing that is going to counter the cursing language you've seen up till now between Genesis 3 and Genesis 11. There have been five curses dropped and Now come five blessings showing that in Abraham's seed, the curse will be reversed. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Folks, the Lord does not just show Abram the land of Palestine. Paul tells us in Romans 4 that Abram understood that the whole earth was his inheritance. Hebrews 11 tells us, That Abraham understood that he was looking forward to the city whose architect and builder is God. The new heavens and the new earth. The land that I will show you. It's first, though, a historical, typological land of Palestine. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is promising to reverse the curse through Abraham's offspring and return us to the blessing of life with himself. See, in Abraham's offspring, we will once again dwell with God. We were kicked out of the garden because of sin. We no longer dwelled with him. We were no longer God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. But now God is telling Abraham that your seed will be the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is coming from humanity, but the seed of woman is specifically coming from the nation of Israel. And he will cause you to dwell with me again. You'll be my people, a nation. You'll be in my place, a land. You'll be under my blessing. And that blessing will extend to all nations. In Abraham's offspring, we once again dwell with God, which is what we lost at the fall. Look at Genesis 17, verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you. This is God speaking to Abraham, reaffirming the covenant he's made. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. See, Abram's purpose was never to just be the father of the Jews. He was always the father of everyone who would ever be saved by the seed of the woman. Always. All the nations will be blessed in him. He's the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. That's what man was meant to be in the garden. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, but he had lost it. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Now listen, here it is, to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. See, God will be our God, and we will be his people. That is the central promise of the gospel. There is no greater promise that you can hear than I am your God, and you are my people, and I dwell with you. The Lord continually reaffirms his promise to his people it is central it is the central promise in every biblical covenant look at exodus 6 7 as god speaks to his people in egypt they've now grown into a great nation but they're in slavery under pharaoh in egypt as god prophesied they would be in genesis 15 moses has been sent as a redeemer to bring them out of egypt look what the lord says of them exodus chapter 6 and verse 7 I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Look at Leviticus. Here God gives them the law in Exodus, really starting in chapter 20 and going through the book of Leviticus. But look at Leviticus chapter 26. By the way, if you don't think God is intimately interested in how he is worshiped, you have not read the book of Leviticus. It has a whole book on it. But look at Leviticus 26 in the context of the Mosaic covenant. Verse 11, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Let's go to the new covenant. I can show it in 2 Samuel 7, 13 14 specifically that he is the father and David's son will be the son. That is, he is God and You're my people, father and son relationship, but I don't have time for that. Go to Jeremiah chapter 32, the context of the new covenant. It's in Abraham, it's in Moses, it's in David. Go to Jeremiah 32, you'll see it in the new covenant. And look at verse 37. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them. That's Israel. They were driven there in the exile. Both the northern kingdom of Israel under the Assyrian captivity, if you will, And the southern kingdom of Judah, under the Babylonian captivity, they're driven into exile. I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. Notice verse 38, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way. By the way, that language, one heart and one way, is picked up in Acts post-Pentecost. The people had one heart and one way. Fulfillment of the new covenant is started. That they may fear me forever, how is the church in Acts described as people walking in the fear of the Lord, for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. See, but how can our holy God dwell with a sinful people? See, God cannot dwell with a sinful people. If you were to face God in and of yourself as a sinful person, you would die. You would be condemned. Thus, for God to dwell with us, Satan, sin, and death, our enemies, must be conquered. Our sin must be atoned for and forgiven. Must be. Look back at Zephaniah chapter 3. Look at verse 15 and 16. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Do you hear that good news? The Lord... It's taken away the judgments against you. What did you do there? You just have judgments against you for your sin. Who took them away from you? Your good works? Your religious efforts? The virtue of your faith? The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. He dwells with you. You shall never again fear On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. By the way, fear not, O Zion is picked up in John 12. I'll talk about that in a minute. And let not your hands grow weak is actually picked up in Hebrews. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He has taken away the judgments against you. This is the prophetic announcement that a day is coming in which our sins have been forgiven. Cleared away your enemies. You shall never again fear evil. This is the prophetic announcement that a day is coming in which Satan's sin and death have been conquered. Now this is all fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why you read what you read in Matthew chapter one. Keep your hand in Zephaniah, but look at Matthew chapter one and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. He is the one who is mighty to save from our sins, who clears away all the judgments. Look what it says next, though. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and this being Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the bracket around the Gospel of Matthew, by the way. It's an inclusio around Matthew like brackets so that you know the whole gospel of Matthew is about this. He will be Emmanuel, God, with us. How does the Great Commission end? And I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is Emmanuel, our Savior. He went to the cross to bear our sins. As Herman Bavinck said, at his cross, the full content of the faith of the Old Testament is unfolded. And Christians were united to Christ through faith in his name. As those who are in Christ, Satan, sin, and death cannot defeat us. Sin is no longer your master. You've been set free and are enslaved to righteousness now. Satan is a conquered foe. God will one day put him under our feet. He that is in you is stronger than he that is in the world. The second death no longer has power of you. In fact, death has no more victory. It has no more sting. That's why when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, you have Zephaniah 3.16 picked up at the beginning of a citation that's from Zechariah nine. As he comes in, and they're laying the palm branches down before him, as he comes in on a donkey, you hear these words first, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. And then you hear Zechariah 9.9, Behold, your king is coming, riding on a donkey. Jesus is the king of Israel, the Lord in our midst he has saved us that's why we're being commanded to sing look at revelation chapter 21 let's go to the end of the book look at verse 1 then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more remember leviathan and death and sin are in the sea it's not that god is opposed to oceans just so we're clear it's speaking about death and sin and what frightens us but i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The church is the bride of Christ. Galatians 4 calls us the New Jerusalem. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now listen to the declaration at the end of all things. When it's all culminated, when it's finally here, the consummation has come, and Jesus dwells with his people. Listen to the declaration. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold... And that's why Zephaniah, and seeing the vision of the coming day of the Lord and the salvation that we have in the Messiah, that's why he says to us, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord Is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. That leads me to the second truth today. Those are the benefits, the glorious benefits of Jesus being Emmanuel. We're saved, forgiven, we have life. What's the gracious purpose of Jesus being Emmanuel? What's the gracious purpose of it in other words why did god do all this why did he do it why did he promise to send his son to save us why did he purpose that in eternity and why did he promise it to us in history see the promise that abraham hears the promise that adam and eve hear in genesis 3 15 that abraham hears in genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22 the promise that you hear in jeremiah the promise that you hear in second samuel 7 That is just a historical manifestation of the eternal purpose of God. So why? Why does God promise this or purpose this before time? Why did God do it? Because he wanted to. Did you hear the answer? Because he wanted to. He did not do this because we deserve it. We actually deserve the opposite. That's part of the shock of the flow of the book of Zephaniah. From Zephaniah 1-2 all the way through Zephaniah 3-8, all we're hearing about is the Lord's coming judgment against Israel and all the nations because of their wickedness and rebellion, because of their saying, it says of Assyria, they're saying in their own hearts, I am. So they described themselves as Yahweh. And you think only judgment's coming for us. And it's shocking because suddenly you get this stunning announcement of the Lord's coming salvation for Israel and the nations in Zephaniah 3, 9 and following. Why is God doing this? Because he purposed to do it. Why did he purpose to do it? Here's the answer that you need to grasp, because that's who he is. It's simply in his character to do it. Look at Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Again, we're told the Lord your God is in your midst. It's the best news you could ever hear. He is a mighty one who will save. That's why Jesus is called both Emmanuel, God with us, and Jesus the Lord saves. But note the language that follows. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, which I think is a bad translation, by the way, and most scholars agree, it ought to be translated. He will be quiet in his love over you. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is like the John 3:16 of the Old Testament, isn't it? You can hear Jesus echoing Zephaniah when he says, "'For God so loved the world "'that he gave his only begotten Son.'" That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why did God do this? Because he is love. And we see all that Zephaniah prophesies here in Christ, do we not? Let's break it down. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Is this not said of Jesus in Luke 10, 21? In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, why does Jesus rejoice in the Holy Spirit? Ready? Listen to what he says. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He rejoices in the Holy Spirit because it's the Father's gracious will to save those who believe. And does not Jesus tell us he rejoices over us in Luke 15, seven, when he says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. See, he rejoices over you with gladness. Further, Zephaniah also tells us he will be quiet in his love over you. We see this with Jesus as well, do we not? Is Jesus ever quiet in his love over us? As Isaiah promised of the coming Messiah, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, seven, what does he say? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He remained silent at his trial. He opened not his mouth and remain quiet in his love over you. Finally Zephaniah also tells us that he will exult, look at the last phrase of verse 17, he will exult over you with loud singing. Notice how things have come full circle. At the beginning of verse 14 we're told that we're to sing. At the end of verse 17 we're told that God sings. God sings over us. He exults over you with loud singing. Are we not told in Hebrews 2:12 that Jesus leads corporate worship? For he who sanctifies, that's Christ, and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers, saying, this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, I will tell of your name, Father, to my brothers. Who's the one preaching in the congregation? Whenever the pastor is properly preaching the word, the Spirit is communicating that to you. That is Jesus' preaching. In the midst of the congregation, listen to what Jesus says. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Who's leading the singing when we gather as a corporate body? Jesus is. Not Jordan. Who's doing the preaching? Jesus is. Not me. Inasmuch as Jordan or I are in error, it's us. Inasmuch as it's true, it's the Lord himself. That's why I can't fathom for the life of me why we are, are so hopelessly distracted by the world so that we often avoid corporate worship. The one place where we're told in scripture, Jesus comes to preach and lead the singing. Where else would you wanna be? What else is happening in the whole world that's greater than that? That you get to hear the Lord sing over you. Further, every time Jesus sings a psalm as he does on the cross, is he not exulting over us with loud singing? Like when he sings Psalm 22 at the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You might object, well, he's singing to God about his bearing the curse. Why do you say he's rejoicing over us in that moment? Because we're told by Paul that Jesus loves his church and laid down his life for her. Peter put Psalm 16 in the mouth of Jesus. In Acts 2, you wanna hear what Jesus sings in Psalm 16, 3? As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent one." They are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Jesus sings over you. You are the excellent ones, in whom is all his delight. Do you hear the good news, Sovereign Grace? Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He is so because he loves to love you, and because he purposed out of that love to save you. He loves you because he is love. He just loves to love you. I don't know how to wrap my mind around that. I don't know how to express that in words. Loves to love you. Is such a redundant, short sighted way of speaking. You see, Christmas is the announcement that love has come down. And thus we sing. Thus we sing. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away judgments against you. The King, the Lord, is in your midst. He's in your midst. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful that your son has come to save us, that you have purposed in eternity past to be God to us and for us to be your people, that you promised that in history first in Genesis 3.15, that you continued to promise that not only to Adam, but to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to Moses, and all Israel, Joshua, and to David, throughout the prophets, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Zephaniah and Zechariah, would just go on, Father, the promise being repeated again and again. And we give thanks that that whole Old Testament story is unfolded in the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of your son. He is God in our midst. We give thanks that he has saved us. We look forward to the day that he will return and consummate all things. And we will hear the final and full fulfillment. Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He is himself our God and we are his people. We know this will be so in your son. We trust him. In Jesus' name, amen.